morning, everybody. Today's reading is from Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. So good to see you all, and thank you. If this is your first time here, we're just so glad that you, uh, to have you here. It's uh, not a show, it's a family, it's not, it's just, we're just here together because we have been touched by Jesus Christ's message and we have been redeemed by him. Uh, it's a privilege today to welcome uh, Pastor Westmill. He's the overseer and the president of Apostolic Church of Pentecost, which I'm a member. I've been there since uh, I was born. And my dad is, was one of the, was the first Christian uh, when the missionary was sent to Burkina Faso. And my dad became the first born-again believer and the first pastor. Uh, it has been such a joy to be a part of it. And so as a church, we are part of ACOP as well. And, and for us to just know, to be in touch, to know that we're part of a greater body, uh, we could go. We have the Eston Bible College come. He oversees that too as well. And, and before that, you, you, you receive Dave Wakes and many other people have come to be a part of our wider community. We're never alone. We are part of a greater community in the city of Lethbridge and outside of the city. And I'm so glad uh, to, to, to have him come. He's a humble person, a man of conviction, and he has a message that I believe is relevant for us and for our people, for our young people, and, and, and I need to hear. And so I heard Joel, me, and Frank, we were at the ACP convention a year ago or so, and he spoke, and when he spoke, that message resonated with us. And we said, will you come and speak to us? And he said, I will joyfully come and share with you. So put your hand together, let welcome again Wes Mill. And uh, he has come with his wife, Lois. You get to meet with him soon. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. You know, there's a saying that says that everything goes better with bacon. Uh, I'm not sure that, every, that sermons go better when you're smelling bacon. So uh, you don't have to put up with it this service. The, re, the last service had just enticed us to want to be downstairs. But it was very good, great fellowship in the first service. Glad to be here for this service. And we're glad to uh, include the Miz as part of the ACOP family of churches. And uh, we, we love Daniel. And it's always a privilege to think back that when missionaries went to Burkina Faso that... Uh, it was his family that was reached, and then now Daniel's come back and serving among us. So it's just neat to see how God works full cycle in people's lives and in families' lives. So, so I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin. What happens when you make a photocopy of a photocopy? Lose a little bit of clarity and a little bit of sharpness, right? If you make a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, what happens? you lose a little more clarity and a little more sharpness. With each successive generation, something is lost. 
And I would submit to you that the same thing happens to the church, that from time to time, it's important and essential for churches to recalibrate back to the original. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus exhorted the church in Ephesus, repent and do the things that you first did. Go back and do the original things. Go back and recalibrate yourself back to the original. I would submit to you that there are three important recalibrations that the church in North America needs to make in the 21st century. The first one is we need to recalibrate our understanding of the gospel. Secondly, we need to recalibrate our understanding of disciple-making. And thirdly, we need to recalibrate our understanding of the church. First of all, we need to recalibrate our understanding of the gospel. The church in the Western world has preached a gospel of salvation rather than the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not that the gospel of salvation is a false gospel, but it's an incomplete gospel. The gospel of salvation produces believers. The gospel of the kingdom of God produces followers for King Jesus. With the gospel of salvation, you get believers who escape hell and inherit heaven, But with the gospel of the kingdom, you get followers who seek to obey Jesus in everything that he commands us to do. In the book of Acts, in the original languages, every time the followers of Jesus are mentioned, they're called disciples. Only one time in the book of Acts are they called believers. They're all called disciples. You see, it's not that the the, the gospel of salvation is wrong, but it's deficient. Now, I travel a lot with uh, my work in ministry, and because I travel, I rent cars, and because I rent cars from a couple of car agencies, I have gold status with a couple of car agencies. And what that usually means is that if they have a better car than the one I paid for, they'll give me an upgrade. It's kind of a, a free upgrade. It really didn't cost them anything because they had the car sitting there anyways, but they make you feel good. So I pay for the Toyota and I get the Tesla, right? It's, it, it's, it's a great deal. Well, in the Western world, the church has preached the gospel of salvation kind of like a free upgrade. We say, in essence, life is good in the Western world. Why not take out a little fire insurance and secure your eternal destiny. Now, I know we don't say it quite like that, but that's oftentimes the message that's communicated. But Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose his life for me will save it. See, the gospel of the kingdom is not a free upgrade. It's a costly call to daily take up our cross and follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, said this. He said, cheap grace is grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, without church discipline, communion, without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross and grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see, when we preach a gospel of salvation... People sign up for love, joy, and peace, and then we tell them that they should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and make that their highest priority. They think we're running some kind of a bait-and-switch scam. The moniker of the modern church is Jesus saves, and, 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 and he does. But the rally cry of the early church was Jesus is Lord. 
You say saying Jesus is Lord is just a mental construct for us. But in the first century Roman world, the Roman citizens were compelled to demonstrate their allegiance to the emperor by declaring Caesar is Lord. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas were arrested in Thessalonica, they were charged with treason against Caesar, for they professed allegiance to another king named Jesus. In his latest book, Not In It to Win It, Andy Stanley says this, First century century followers of Jesus weren't branded Christians to differentiate them from the followers of Zeus or Jupiter. The term Christian was based in Latin political terminology. Christian was analogous to other political associations like the Caesareans, who were the followers of Caesar, or the Herodians, the followers of Herod, or the Nerodians, the followers of Nero. The followers of Jesus were branded Christian because it was evident from their behavior that they were following another king. I think this speaks volume to the political maelstrom that the church finds itself in today. We should not be co-opted by any political ideology. May it be said of us that we were Christians because we followed another king. Amen? Thank you, Andy Stanley. (laughs) Brian Zahn, the pastor of the Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, said a first-time visitor to his church came up to him and said, why don't you have an American flag flying in the church? And he said, we are not an American church. We are a church that belongs to the universal body of Christ that just happens to be in America. And instead of a flag, we display a cross because that's where our allegiance lies. Amen? The gospel of salvation has produced a crop of preachers who say one thing on Sunday and do something else the rest of the week. How else do we explain the apostasies and the moral failure among so many high-profile Christian leaders? Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The gospel of salvation is about a profession of faith, but the gospel of the kingdom is about radical obedience to the words of Jesus. I submit to you that the church must recalibrate ourselves back to the full gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel that was preached and practiced by the early church that turned the world upside down, or maybe better, turned the world right side up in 300 years. It's not that the gospel of salvation is wrong. It's just an incomplete gospel. Secondly, we need to recalibrate our understanding of disciple-making. We've already read the Great Commission from Matthew 28 this morning, so we won't read it again. But making disciples is the mission that Jesus gave to his followers. He said, that's what I want you to do, is go and make disciples. Now, much of the church in the Western world, we've substituted the, word, the words making disciples for discipleship. And by the way, discipleship is never found anywhere in the Bible. Making disciples is found, but discipleship isn't. You see, what most people have come to mind when they think about discipleship is really about spiritual formation. And we could sum it up maybe a little too simplistically, but read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That would be spiritual formation. We are allowing ourselves to be formed by Christ, to be made more like Jesus. But that is not what disciple-making is all about. We must evaluate the effectiveness of what we call discipleship in the North American church when only 9% of evangelicals in North America practice tithing. How's our discipleship working for us? Not very well. 
The mission that Jesus gave his followers was to make disciples. I believe that we need to recalibrate our disciple-making to be in keeping with the model and the practice that Jesus followed for making disciples. So there's five things about disciple-making, the Jesus disciple-making model that I want to share with you. First of all, Jesus chose 12 men to be with him. Mark 3 and 14, it says he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Jesus invited the 12 disciples to do life with him. It wasn't a program or a process that they were enrolled in. He invited them into his life. He invited them to be with him wherever he went. So they went with him to people's homes. They went to weddings. They traveled together. They ate together. They went to the synagogue together. They healed the sick together. They raised the dead. They fed the multitudes. Everywhere Jesus went, his disciples went with him. Folks, I don't think we can make fully formed disciples if we don't spend time with the people that we're discipling. You can't phone it in. You can't do it online. It has to happen face-to-face and life on life. Now, you can transfer information online, but transformation is something different, and that takes to take place face-to-face. And so we need to recalibrate our disciple-making to be more like Jesus' disciple-making practice. Number two, Jesus' disciples were apprentices. In Matthew 5 and 2, it says, and this is in the message translation, it says it refers to the disciples as those who were apprenticed to him. Those who were apprenticed to him. Disciple-making is more akin to apprenticeship than it is to classroom learning. My oldest son, Tyler, is an electrician, master electrician, but he started off as an apprentice. He worked with a master electrician, learning the skills of the trade. And eventually he became a journeyman electrician. And now he's a master electrician and he has apprentices working for him. Most journeymen will tell you that they don't learn a whole lot in the classroom. They learn theory in the classroom, but they really learn their craft. They really learn their trade in the field, working alongside a master electrician. I also want you to note that there's a multiplicative component built into an apprenticeship program. Apprentices become journeymen. Journeymen become master electricians, and then master electricians take on apprentices. A cursory reading of the Gospels will reveal that Jesus used an apprentice model to train his disciples. The Apostle Paul also advocated for the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, and he said, The things that you've heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So from Paul to the next generation to another generation. So there's a multiplicative thing built into the disciple-making process in the New Testament. Number three, Jesus' disciples were engaged in his mission. Mark 3.14, it says he, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus' disciples were engaged in his mission. It's not clear how long it took the disciples that Jesus had called to be with him. It's not clear how long they were with him before he sent them out to do the mission. But my sense is it was probably long before they thought they were ready. The point is, is that Jesus began to engage his disciples in ministry early in the disciple-making process. And Jesus didn't wait till they were fully formed, that they had it all figured out, that they had it all together. He sent them out on mission when they probably thought they weren't ready. 
And folks, if we're going to make disciples, we need to engage people in the mission sooner rather than later. Number four, Jesus empowered his disciples. Matthew 10 and verse 1, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Disciple-making is about empowering people to do ministry. And part of empowering is just giving permission to people and giving people authority to do ministry. But another part of it is laying, on hand, laying hands on those that we're discipling and expecting an impartation of the Holy Spirit that will empower them to take them on mission for Jesus. Number five, Jesus calls everyone to be a disciple and everyone to be a disciple maker. In Luke 10, it says, The Lord chose 72 others disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns that he planned to visit. In the Western church and much of the Western world, we have created a false dichotomy. We say you can be a believer, and if you really want to be committed, you could be a disciple of Jesus. Now, we don't say it quite like that, but that's the message that we often leave, that, yeah, you can be a believer, but if you, know, if you really want to, you could be a disciple. I think our professional clergy model reinforces that dichotomy. Somebody said, we pay pastors to be good, but you want the rest of us to be good for nothing? Jesse Cruikshank of 5Q Network says that only 11% of pastors have ever been trained to make disciples. Let's remember that the purpose of the five-fold ministry gift is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So we need to recalibrate our understanding of the gospel. I think we need to recalibrate our understanding of disciple-making. And finally, we need to recalibrate our understanding of the church. When the pandemic hit in March of 2020, churches around the globe were not allowed to meet face-to-face. And the first priority for most churches was how do we get our Sunday service online? Now, if the mission of the church is to make disciples, shouldn't the first priority have been how do we make disciples in this new reality of a global pandemic. But no, our highest priority was to get the Sunday service online. I had one pastor tell me, we had a five-year plan to get our service online, and we got it done in five days. So I realize that church services are part of the disciple-making process, but I want to ask you the Dr. Phil question, how's that working for you? Are you happy with the results? Are, are you turning out disciples because of your Sunday morning service? And more importantly, is Jesus happy with the results? You see, every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it's currently getting, and if we don't like the results, then we need to change the system. I submit to you that we need to recalibrate our understanding of the church. I want you to look at this next slide. You see what that is? It's an apple orchard that apparently a hurricane blew through, blew through just as the apples were ready to be picked. <clears throat> this picture will serve as a metaphor for the next few moments of what I want to share with you. I submit to you that most pastors see themselves as collectors of apples. Every Sunday, pastors collect as many apples as they can and count them. And as long as there are more apples this week than there were last week or than there were last year, or more importantly, if there's more apples in their church than there is in the church down the street, they think 
that they are being successful. <laughs> it takes a particular skill to gather apples together, and some pastors excel at gathering apples. In fact, they are so efficient that they sometimes find it necessary to hire apple collectors to help them collect all the apples that they want to collect. Some apple collectors are so successful that they have to establish another campus on the other side of town so that there's enough room for all of the apples that they're gathering together. But there's also need to care for the apples during the week. And if you don't provide just the right climate-controlled environment to pamper the apples, they will begin to spoil. And the apples must be pampered at all costs. You see, if you're not providing just what the apples need or just what they prefer, some other apple collector is likely to start gathering some of your apples in their apple gathering. Now here's another key. If you look after the little apples just right, you'll keep the big apples really happy. And the big apples, if they're happy, they might even invite other apples to come and join your apple gathering. Some apples have been bruised by their interaction with other apples in other apple gatherings. And if you want to keep those apples in your gathering, you're going to have to pay special attention to them and give them special care. The other thing that you have to watch out for is rotten apples. You get one rotten apple, it'll spoil the whole bunch, so you need to isolate and eliminate all of the rotten apples. All the apples you're collecting need to be washed by full immersion and with the right formula. In order to keep the system going, you need to squeeze a little apple juice from the apples every week. Not too much, or they might not come back to your apple gathering, but enough to pay the bills and to keep the apple gathering warehouse in good shape. <laughs> With accessible washrooms. <laughs> Some apple gatherers have a vision to send out apples to plant a new apple gathering in another city. And some apple gatherers have a vision to even send people or to send apples over across the sea to start other apple gatherings in other countries. Now, if a pastor is a good apple gatherer, they may get invited to become the apple gatherer or the pastor at another apple gathering. And if you're a really good apple gatherer, you can anticipate that you'll get invited to speak at apple gathering conferences where you can wax eloquent about your apple gathering ways. Feel any application here? <laughs> so here's an alternative picture. What if what Jesus had in mind was a much more organic approach to ministry? What if Jesus has called us, instead of being apple gatherers, to be the tender of an orchard? What if Jesus wants us to nurture apple trees and reap a harvest of 30, 60, or 100 you see, depending on the species of apples, mature apple trees can produce about 300 apples per year. And within the core of each apple, there are between five and eight seeds. So at the low end, that means that every apple tree has the potential to become 1,500 apple trees. Now, not every apple tree becomes an orchard, but it could. The point is not to see how many apples you can collect, but how many seeds you can sow. See, multiplication is a principle that God has built into the natural world, and I would suggest to you that it's what he had in mind for the church. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God's been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be each rewarded according to their labor. You see, the problem is most pastors have honed their skills to be apple gatherers, and it takes a whole different skill set to tend an orchard. If you're going to tend an orchard, you need to understand what variety of apples will grow in the soil that your orchard is located in. Can we grow delicious apples here, or can we grow Macintosh apples here? Or is this a crab apple community? You see, we need to make sure that the soil is fertilized and the trees are sufficiently watered so that we can maximize the apple harvest. Now, you know, it usually takes between three and five years for an apple tree to become mature and actually begin to produce fruit. And sometimes we're just a little too impatient to wait for that to happen. Now here's a quote by Ed Statzer. I don't normally put big long quotes on the screen, but I'm going to put this one on because I think it's important. Statzer says this, Just as the fruit of an apple tree is not an apple, but another apple tree. The true fruit of a small group is not a new Christian, but another group. The true fruit of the church is not a new group, but a new church. And the true fruit of a leader is not a follower, but a new leader. And the true fruit of an evangelist is not a convert, but a new evangelist. Wherever this principle is understood and applied, the results are dramatic. So I began by saying this morning that with each successive generation, something is lost. And every system is perfectly designed to get the results it's currently getting. And from time to time, we need to recalibrate back to the original. We must preach the gospel of the kingdom, for it is still the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Secondly, discipleship programs are not enough. We need to be committed to making disciples who will make disciples. And finally, we need to recalibrate our thinking about the church. We need to change the scorecard as to how we measure success in the church. If the church remains fixated on gathering together rather than multiplying disciples, we can expect to get the same results that we're currently getting. The church is the vehicle, not the destination. The church is the primary vehicle for disciple-making, but the destination is multiplication. So our scorecard needs to, ex- needs to reflect that measure of success. So let's wind this thing up. By way of application, it starts with me, starts with us. First question I have for you is, are you a believer or are you a disciple? A believer or are you a disciple? Second question is, if you're a disciple, are you a disciple maker? And the third question is, am I an apple looking for the best apple gathering in town or am I part of an orchard that's producing a harvest for the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, from time to time, you have to remind us that we need to recalibrate back to what you had originally in mind. And I pray today that you would help us preach the gospel of the kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us make disciples. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see a multiplication of people saved through your church. 
pray your blessing on this congregation. pray that you'd work in each of their lives and make them an effective tool for your kingdom in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.